Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. A reminder for you, if you enjoy Southern Mysteries, you can hear more when you become a Patreon member. Patrons hear bonus content called Southern Mysteries Shorts each month. Head to patreon.com slash southern mysteries to join today. How does a week-long revival end with a murder of a 72-year-old woman? That's the question people were asking in February 1933, when deputies entered a cabin in the mountains of Kentucky. There they found Lucinda Mills, dead on the floor, her son kneeling on her body with a chain twisted around her neck. Within days, rumors spread that Lucinda had volunteered to die at the hands of her son John as a human sacrifice. Why did John Mills feel compelled to kill his mother? And why did none of the eight relatives in the cabin with him stop him? Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the cult of the unknown tongues. Laban Mills of Tomahawk, Kentucky, died peacefully at home on July 21, 1914. His wife, Lucinda, was left behind to mourn him, along with 11 children. Mr. Mills belonged to the Odd Fellows, and his burial in the Mills Family Cemetery was arranged by local members of the Mysterious Fraternal Society. Odd Fellows was formed in England before the 18th century and most likely was known as Odd because its purpose was to help the less fortunate with acts of charity. England was at the beginning of industrialization, so the idea of dedicating yourself to others and the welfare of your community was considered odd. The first known American Odd Fellows Lodge dates back to 1806. While there's no question of their kindness and good works, Odd Fellows was condemned by the Catholic Church in the late 19th century, just when their membership was growing by leaps and bounds. Rumors spread about witchcraft and satanic worship at Odd Fellows Lodges. Then there were the skeletons. Police reports of skeletons found in Odd Fellows Lodges were revealed in 2001, when the LA Times wrote of the discovery of Jane Doe skeletons in old buildings that had been used as lodges in Missouri, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, and Nebraska. Now, the skeleton was said to be a symbol of mortality for Odd Fellows, not seen by anyone until they're initiated a ceremony not discussed with outsiders who were skeptical of Odd Fellows because of those skeletons and other things, like segregation. Following the Civil War came a split of the Odd Fellows into two branches, one open to people of all races and one strictly for white people, the kind of lodges you'd find in the Jim Crow South. 
Now, the branches thrived, and by 1922, it's estimated there were more than two and a half million members of Oddfellows, making it larger than the Freemasons. But with the onset of the Great Depression, membership declined until decades later, when there was a resurgence of membership and integration, with the International Order of Oddfellows reporting 600,000 members in the United States still committed to charity. But those skeletons, they still make people a little uneasy. Back in 2001, an odd fellow of 50 years, Mr. Wayne Colgrove, told the LA Times that the skeleton and its association with initiation is simply a life lesson. You're here, and pretty soon you're gone. And there's a hereafter. Something Mr. Laban Mills of Tomahawk, Kentucky, likely believed as a member. Belief that intersected with faith in a higher power as he faced death. His obituary tells of his conversion to faith in those final days. He was carried to water and baptized. Religion was very important in the mountain region where Mr. Mills lived and important to his family including his wife, Lucinda, who would die in 1933. Lucinda was laid to rest next to Laban in the Mills family cemetery. But her final moments were not peaceful. The story of Lucinda Mills' death is the stuff of nightmares, an intersection of distorted religious beliefs, madness, and a growing hunger on the part of newspapers of the 1920s and 30s to feed off fear and sell sensational stories. The 1920s was a decade of profound change in America, along with a flash of flappers and jazz that we associate with the Roaring Twenties. It was also the golden age of fraternalism. 40% of the U.S. population claimed membership in at least one fraternal society, like the Oddfellows and Freemasons. As members embraced rituals and ceremonies of these societies, outsiders began to fear rumors were true that witchcraft and satanic rituals were being performed by members. That fear was fueled by the rise of religious sects and cults between the 1920s and 30s, as America faced the Great Depression and emerged with new questions about life and their place in the world. California was a hotbed of cult activity in the 20s, with more than 200,000 cultists statewide that were branded in newspapers and in society as devil worshipers. Cults were loosely defined at this time as a group in which there's an all-encompassing control of member behavior and beliefs that are extremist in their worldview. Which is why some people believed there was a fine line between cults, members of fraternal societies, and the self-described believers who were part of a growing number of charismatic Pentecostal sects in the 1920s and 30s. Churches associated with the holiness movement, as it's known, believed in absolute truth in the scriptures, justification, sanctification, baptism of the Holy Ghost, 
and divine healing. The belief led to the formation of the first megachurch in America, led by the controversial faith healer and media celebrity Amy Simple McPherson. As with all movements and denominations, there were subsets and churches that shared the beliefs of the holiness movement, that were inspired by the movement, but formed their own interpretation of it. Offshoots that made those within the movement very uncomfortable. The difference of opinions among holiness movement pastors was evident in opinion pieces shared in many newspapers at this time. Following several stories of people dying while participating in faith services, in snake-handling churches, and several cases of so-called believers choking children and adults to display the power of faith over death, H.B. Barger, then leader of Holiness Church in North Carolina, wrote an opinion piece in 1940. In it, he shared his concerns about perceptions of the movement because of what he called fanatics who distorted scripture and in some cases caused harm on a spiritual and a physical level. Barger wrote, Insomuch as I am a holiness preacher, and as there are many cults and organizations of the same name, and in some rank fanaticism is prevalent, I'm embarrassed and grieved because some who do not know the difference put us all in the same class. Barger went on to share that he and fellow leaders of holiness churches were opposed to unholiness cults that were gaining followers and engaging in what he called fanatical practices and the misinterpretation of scripture that had led to injury and death. A prime example of that fanaticism and distortion of beliefs was John Mills' so-called church in Martin County, Kentucky, known as the Cult of the Unknown Tongues. John Mills was accused of killing his mother while members of the church raised their hands in prayer and did nothing to help. Lucinda Mills' death was the climax of the group's week-long revival of dancing and glossolalia, more commonly known as speaking in tongues. Now, to understand more of the story of Lucinda's death and the beliefs that were distorted by John Mills for his religious sect, it's important to know a little more about speaking in tongues and its profound impact on charismatic Pentecostal sects at this time. Glossolalia is not exclusive to Christian denominations. It's been observed in religious practices such as spiritism and shamanism. Within the charismatic Pentecostal sects on the rise in Kentucky and across Appalachia in the 1930s, what was called baptism with the Holy Spirit was the third of three works of grace. First, there was new birth or being born again with your acceptance of faith. Second was entire sanctification, which was evidenced by your spiritual maturity. And third was being filled with the Spirit speaking in tongues. Now, within the holiness movement, churches were not aligned in their beliefs when it came to speaking in tongues. Some followed what's considered biblical guidelines written by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. 
he wrote that the spiritual gift of tongues required interpretation in church so fellow believers could understand the message from God. For that to happen, someone present would have the spiritual gift of interpretation. If you were at home on your own and you received that gift of speaking in tongues, your spirit was speaking to God, so no interpretation was needed. But that's just an interpretation of that biblical passage. Not everyone associated with the holiness movements agreed or followed the general beliefs of these other denominations and subsets. When Lucinda Mills was found dead in a cabin near Tomahawk, Kentucky, in February 1933, it was the results of fanatical and twisted beliefs and a madman's misinterpretation of a message he claimed to receive from God through his gift of the unknown tongue and scripture. And the media ate this up. They picked up on it and labeled the death of Lucinda Mills as a, quote, human sacrifice carried out by a Kentucky mountain cult. At the time of her shocking death in 1933, Lucinda Mills lived on a farm along the Stafford Fork Stream in Martin County. It's in eastern Kentucky near the West Virginia border. Lucinda, or Aunt Lucindy, as most folks called her, had family members staying with her on and off again, including her son and daughter-in-law, Fred and Trixie Mills. The Mills were a large family with deep roots in the region. A small group of relatives had been moved by a charismatic Pentecostal preacher who had brought a revival meeting to the mountain community the year before. This small group led by John Mills met for worship in different homes around the little village of Tomahawk, not far from Lucinda's farm. Neighbors say the followers of this group gathered often. Men and women would sing and pray in a circle, their bodies moving in unison, hands above their heads until they received what was called their blessing. They would shout in what was known as the unknown tongue, an unintelligible mixture of sounds, which church members said was their language for prayer that they didn't need to understand. They trusted John Mills, their leader, who would guide them with his visions and messages from God. Now, as these meetings continued, some family members believed what John Mills was teaching, but some of his followers began to feel uncomfortable when claims were made that John and his flock could perform miracles, turn water into wine, and transform grapevine stalks into curling snakes. This led some relatives to back away from those meetings. As snow covered Martin County in early February 1933, the group gathered in different homes for a week-long revival of dancing, fasting, and speaking in tongues. Around February 8th, locals expressed concern about strange shouting coming from the Boyd cabin where Lucinda's daughter, Talitha, lived with her husband, Tommy. Gathered in that cabin with the Boyds were Lucinda Mills, along with her sons, 36-year-old John 
and 34-year-old Fred Mills, their wives, Alma and Trixie, Lucinda's 25-year-old grandson, Ballard Mills, her son-in-law, Blaine McGinnis, and her daughters, Molly McGinnis and Ora Moore. Being a large family in a small community, word spread quickly of the growing intensity of these gatherings, and there was concern within the Mills family who were not members of John's church. So much so, they tried to step in and help. Rhoda Mills, one of Lucinda's daughter-in-laws, was one of the family members who raised the alarm, worried that something was off in the Boyd cabin. She went to Tommy Boyd's cabin out of concern for the children inside. She heard some of them had been a part of these meetings for days upon days and had not eaten. She felt she needed to get the children and take them to her home to feed them. When she arrived at Tommy Boyd's cabin, she claimed she was so overcome with fear over what she heard inside that she didn't knock or try to enter. She did look in the window and saw dancing and rejoicing and waving of arms in the air before she claimed to hear someone yell, let's crucify her. Rhoda said Ballard Mills noticed her in the window and yelled at her, so she left and went to the home of one of Lucinda's older sons to raise the alarm that there could be something terrible happening in that cabin. The brother called the sheriff and deputies were sent to Tommy Boyd's house. When they arrived and heard screaming and shouting inside on February 8th, they broke down the door because they had been told someone could be in danger. Inside, they found utter chaos. They saw John Mills sitting on top of his 72-year-old mother, his knees in her chest, clinging to chains wrapped around his mother's neck. The deputies later wrote in their report that John repeatedly screamed, Have your way, Lord, have your way, as they tried to pull him off his mother. John began talking in the unknown tongue, and family members followed suit. Later, one apologized, saying something that made no sense to the deputies. She said, quote, It was hard to give mother up, but she wanted to go to the asylum to cast the devils out of them. As deputies tried to subdue John Mills and push everyone out of the cabin, John seemed out of his mind as he hit them and resisted being pulled away from Lucinda. Some of the church members tried to help John resist. Deputy Rafe Mollett had to threaten Blaine McGinnis with his pistol to get him to back away as they checked Lucinda for signs of life. But she was gone. When Ballard Mills came towards a deputy with a knife, he pulled his gun and ordered Ballard to drop his weapon. All the while, John Mills and some people in that cabin were acting, as one deputy put it, like raving, crazy, drunk people. A few children were in the cabin while the service was taking place, but had been shut in a room by their parents, away from the room where Lucinda died. They were taken away to safety, and police took eight of Lucinda's relatives 
into custody. Later in the day, Rhoda Mills returned to Tommy Boyd's cabin to help neighbors lay out Lucinda Mills on a bed and prepare her for burial. Rhoda said that as she helped Lucinda's neighbors put the body back on a bed, she noticed there were more chains on Lucinda around her ankles, and her neck must have been broken because it was ever so limber as they cared for her body. Rumors were already spreading that Lucinda had volunteered to be a human sacrifice in this religious service. But Rhoda said the marks on Lucinda's body could have only come from a woman who struggled to save her life, not let her son take it. As neighbors and family tried to process the news of what happened in that cabin, eight of Lucinda's relatives were held in the Martin County Jail in Inez. John Mills was held in a cell separate from the rest of the group. He refused to talk, lapsed into a stupor in his jail cell after he was said to have attacked a jailer. He was so violent, he was ordered chained to the cell bars for his protection and the protection of anyone who needed to enter the cell. The others were held in a cell where they prayed and sang for a few hours. Eventually, the reality of what happened seemed to hit a few of them who agreed to talk about what had happened because they realized John Mills had, as they put it, loosed evil spirits among them. That his visions, his teachings must not have been true. They told authorities that John Mills had received a message through his prayers and worship, which he interpreted as instruction to carry out a burnt offering, such as the story from the Bible, where God instructs Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. Abraham was near completion of that sacrifice when God instructed him it was a test of faithfulness and told him to spare his son. John Mills had taken the idea of burnt sacrifice and believed choking the life out of someone could prove power over death. Once the offering was complete and his mother, Lucinda, had been burnt on an altar in that cabin, she would be resurrected within three days. All of that prayer Fasting and speaking in tongues was in preparation for the sacrifice he believed must happen. Some of the family members sitting in jail in Martin County were overcome with grief, in shock that John had killed Lucinda. They were beginning to process that what they believed would not come true. Lucinda would not be resurrected. County attorney Jasper Priest spoke with Talitha Boyd, Lucinda's daughter, and asked her what happened inside that cabin. She offered this account of the events leading up to the moment she witnessed her brother John kill their mother. Talitha and Tommy Boyd were at home in their cabin around 11 a.m. 
when they heard shouting down by the creek. She looked out the window and saw her brother John walking down the hollow, holding a stick in front of him. His eyes were shut, and he had a Bible in his hand. Ballard Mills was walking alongside John, carrying a stick. Talitha said the men were stumbling up the road, and she could tell their eyes were closed because they kept stumbling over rocks and bushes. Behind John and Ballard were John's wife, Alma, and his brother, Fred Mills, and Fred's wife, Trixie. Walking behind them was a group of children. Soon after, the group entered the Boyd's cabin and started praying and shouting. Talitha said some of the family members began beating each other with Bibles to, as John directed them, drive out the devils. John then began striking people with his stick to see if they were, quote, worthy. This shouting continued for a while, and some of the children were so scared of John Mills, they ran out of the cabin. That's when Talitha said she gathered the rest of the children into a room and closed the door. The door of the cabin was barred as John Mills continued shouting and announced he was going to drive the devils out of their mother. Lucinda Mills was at the Boyd's house because she had been dealing with a severe headache and was resting in another room. John Mills rushed into that room to get his mother, and he forced her to come back and sit down on the floor on what he called the altar. He instructed his mother to lay down and started praying and waving his hands and speaking in an unknown tongue. Salitha said other family members joined in, and all of a sudden, John placed his hands around Lucinda's throat and started choking and extinguishing the life out of this woman who had given him life. John Mills then kneeled on Lucinda's chest and choked her with one hand as he beat her with the other. Talitha said Lucinda tried to get away, but she was too weak. And the rest of the people in the room, including her, were either too scared or compelled by some spirit that made them unable to move and save Lucinda. Talitha also confirmed to the county attorney John had indeed planned to burn Lucinda, his own mother, as an offering, a sacrifice that would overcome death and see his mother resurrected in three days. Blaine McGinnis, Lucinda's son-in-law, explained to authorities that there was a moment when John was choking his mother to death when he tried to grab John's arm, but he said he couldn't. He said he didn't know how to explain it. He literally felt as though he could not move. He just stood there as John Mills choked Lucinda and ordered Ballard Mills to bring him chains that he wrapped around Lucinda. The following day, the body of Lucinda Mills was placed in a makeshift sled and carried over icy fields to her burial in Mills Family Cemetery. By that afternoon, Judge T.J. Harden 
held an inquest, and the verdict was that Mrs. Lucinda Ward-Mills died at the hands of her son John and others. County attorney Jasper Priest immediately moved to charge John Mills with murder and the other relatives as accessories. Tommy Boyd was held as a material witness. When arraigned by Judge Hardin on February 12th, John Mills was still in a stupor, unable to speak as he was brought into the courtroom, tied down on a cot. When the judge asked him to answer the charge that he killed his mother, John's response was to wave his arms above his head and begin shouting. Six relatives who were being held as accessories were called to testify. Blaine McGinnis, Lucinda's son-in-law, made a shocking claim to county attorney priests, saying Lucinda was a, quote, willing sacrifice. But the meaning of that statement seems to have been twisted by local and national media outlets that knew sensationalizing an already shocking story could sell more papers. Blaine said his mother-in-law was a woman of faith who wanted to do something to help her son, Leonard. Leonard Mills had been institutionalized at Eastern Kentucky Hospital for the Insane and was said to be of a very religious temperament. Blaine claimed he heard his mother-in-law make statements about willingly giving her life to save Leonard's. John Mills said they would make an attempt to rescue Leonard from the asylum, an attempt that required smoting his believers by strangulation. It's believed that in the months before Lucinda died, some family members had questioned whether John Mills should be institutionalized. Perhaps this doubt cast over his own mental state added to John Mills' belief that a burnt offering was required to show power over death and offer complete healing of Leonard and possibly his own mind. John Mills' believers really believed all he told them. They trusted him. But county attorney priests revealed John Mills' neighbors and many family members who had been present at religious gatherings led by John had long been concerned about his seemingly growing violent nature. They worried about his behavior in the weeks before Lucinda died because he had mentioned several names had been revealed to him as sacrifices. Blaine McGinnis confirmed to the state that John Mills named at least four people he planned to offer as a sacrifice. The first three were to have been Lucinda's son, Fred, and his wife, Trixie, along with an evangelist named William Duty, who had joined in these religious meetings over the past year. When questioned about this, Trixie acknowledged that before John choked his mother to death, he had laid Trixie on the floor of that cabin and started to choke her, but she was able to free herself from John's grasp and get off the ground. Up to this point, the members of the family who joined in these meetings had accepted John Mills' teaching. But Trixie said Lucinda had been warning John that he was going too far 
with what he was preaching and teaching. Priest also spoke with locals around Tomahawk who told him there was some sort of disagreement between John and his brother Fred. Perhaps this is why John Mills chose Fred, Trixie, and Lucinda as perfect offerings, along with Reverend Duty. Priest's investigators learned John Mills had argued with the evangelist over the leadership of their group in the week before Lucinda's death, and John Mills had badly beaten him. Priest made his position clear that John Mills must be held over to face murder charges because others could be in danger if he was set free. The judge agreed and ordered John Mills bound over for the next grand jury session in April. John Mills' defense immediately entered a plea of temporary insanity for John and his relatives charged as accessories in Lucinda's death. He said he would set about proving John and his followers experienced a temporary imbalance when Lucinda was choked to death, an imbalance brought on by days of fasting and prayer. When the grand jury convened on April 5th, nine of Lucinda Mills' relatives were indicted with murder, conspiracy to murder, and aiding and abetting. John H. Mills and his wife Alma, Fred Mills and his wife Trixie, Molly McGinnis and her husband Blaine, Ora Moore, Ballard Mills, and Tommy Boyd. All but John and Ballard Mills awaited trial while out on bond. By April 9th, the trial was underway with a large crowd in and around the courthouse in Inez. Judge Bailey ordered Fred Mills and Tommy Boyd freed of complicity in the slaying due to the weakness of the state's case against them. Over the next two days, two very different pictures were painted of those involved in the tragic death of Lucinda Mills. Defense counsel Harry Ramey and Walter Prater's case relied on the testimony of two psychiatrists from Eastern State Hospital for the Insane. The doctors evaluated all of the defendants and testified John Mills was insane at the time of the killing. Dr. Thompson said John Mills had no concept of right from wrong and did not have the power to control himself. He believed John Mills suffered from the manic depressive type of insanity at the time of Lucinda's death and continued to suffer. The doctor agreed that the remaining defendants had been bound up by such great emotion and so determined to believe and follow their leader that they were not responsible for what they were doing. Defense counsel Ramey, speaking on behalf of John Mills, Ballard Mills, Blaine and Molly McGinnis, and Ora Moore, argued that the slaying of Lucinda was as black and horrible a crime as the Commonwealth had pictured but Ramey said John Mills was, quote, stark mad at that time and is stark mad now. Ramey also argued the remaining defendants were under a hypnotic spell, and it was a case of the blind leading the blind. Commonwealth attorney J.B. Clark told the jury 
that John Mills was a cold-blooded killer who murdered his mother as the other defendants stood about agreeing and praising and praying with him. The prosecution called psychiatrists who testified the defendants were sane, and John Mills was faking his insanity even as they sat in the courtroom. Clark called witnesses who shared conversations in which John Mills had spoken of killing someone, including his mother, before the family gathered in the cabin. Clark argued that it was no mistake. John said his mother had to be sacrificed because he harbored ill will against her for saying he was taking things too far with his beliefs. The jury would deliberate the case for 12 hours. At 10.30 a.m. on April 12th, John Mills was found guilty of murdering his mother. He was immediately sentenced to life in prison. Ballard Mills and Blaine McGinnis were found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to 21 years. The other defendants were found not guilty. Blaine McGinnis was the only defendant to make a statement in court that day, vowing to fight the verdict. And he did. Months later, on November 3rd, the governor of Kentucky granted Blaine a pardon. His opinion was Blaine McGinnis never intentionally did anything towards the killing of Lucinda Mills. Unlike John, who had choked her, and Ballard, who had retrieved the chains that John wrapped around his mother's neck. The killing of Lucinda Mills was a heartbreaking tragedy for her family and community, made worse by the sensational headlines that told of Lucinda volunteering to die as a human sacrifice. Family members who tried to prevent the tragedy felt ignored, including one who called the county sheriff the day before Lucinda died. They asked for help in shutting down the meetings, but it was too late to save Lucinda. Very few newspapers at this time ever mentioned that a great many of Lucinda's family tried to help, but just felt powerless. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can view photos and sources from this episode at southernmysteries.com. I feel it's worth mentioning that in researching the story of Lucinda and her children, I came across World War I service records for Leonard Mills and John Mills. About 20% of soldiers returning from that war were said to have a condition called war neurosis, was later labeled shell shock. The disorder was characterized by the common symptoms of tics, convulsions, muscle spasms, paralysis, the shakes, and problems with their memory. It's closely associated with what we call post-traumatic stress disorder today. Now, during and after World War I, it was called the invisible war wound because soldiers who suffered did so with no explanation of what was happening to them, and it took years for the medical community to understand the mental state of soldiers and how to treat them which meant many a soldier returned home 
and displayed behaviors that they could not understand and neither could their loved ones. He can't help but wonder if these brothers return to the mountains of Kentucky with invisible war wounds that continued to plague them. And in John Mills' case, may have led him to spiral into this state of madness and murder. Guess that will always just be a mystery. Hey, I want to say a big thanks to the newest patrons who are helping make this independent podcast possible. It's the reason I get to share these stories with you because of their support. Ashley from Mount Dora, Florida. Karen from Wetumpka, Alabama. Alicia from Ocala, Florida. Judy from a mysterious location in the United States. Sherry from Horton, Alabama. And Shannon from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Thank you so much for your support. And you know, they are enjoying bonus Southern Mystery Shorts each month. And you can too when you become a patron of Southern Mysteries. Head to patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries to learn more and join today. You'll get immediate access to more than 20 Southern Mystery Shorts so you can catch up before the release of the new Patreon-exclusive episode later this month. And remember, not all of us can financially help out, but there are other ways to support Southern Mysteries. You can share this episode on your socials. You can rate and review the podcast where you're listening now. And follow the show wherever you listen to make sure you don't miss a new episode. Thanks so much if you've done any of that or are doing it now. I appreciate you so much. Thanks for listening. Oh, oh, oh.